Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is a documentary about Barry Manilow, in which we discuss Mandy. Um, you gave without taking. His career was a lot more interesting than I had any recollection of. You know, um, when he started his lumberjacking, um, you know, just sort of as a backup gig, uh, really, really different turn for old Barry there. Yeah, there's a lot more crossbow work going on in Barry Manilow's life than I had expected, which was a fun uh, turn of events. Yeah. Uh, Nick Cage does a great job as Barry. Um, it's the best National Treasure uh, sequel we've seen. Now, yeah. You know, the, the, the million-dollar question at this point really is, you know, which lounge singer do you want to see in a revenge thriller? I mean, mm. what, are you thinking like a Tony Bennett kind of thing? Or are you thinking like more of a Frank Sinatra? Sinatra. You know, Sinatra seems like, you know, the natural. Honestly, yeah, I'm surprised that movie doesn't exist. Nina Simone? Michael Buble. Oh, does... Now, Nina Simone is an excellent choice. Yeah, okay. Hmm. I don't know enough lounge singers to do this <laughs> bit. Like I, I sat here looking like I was thinking of something. I, I got nothing. Guys. I'm sorry. Richard Cheese's revenge. That was oh literally Richard Cheese was my first thought. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, uh. So <laughs> anyway, um, yes, we are down with the sickness here at the Good Trash Owner Cast. Uh, before we get any further, though, let's go ahead and identify these voices. And we have a new one that you may not recognize. Um, so, ma'am, would you introduce yourself first? Hello, I am uh, Kirsten Thurkelson. Welcome, welcome. We're so glad to have our own Frightful Femme here on the show. Be sure you check out all her written content at GoodTrashMedia.com. It's been a while since uh, Kristen's been on. It's fun to have her back. Yeah, Heather's, I think, was the last time. Damn, it's yeah. been a long. Mm -hmm. yeah, And the Hereditary special. Yeah, that's so. true. Oh, that's right. Hot takes from a hot car. That was a very <laughs> hot car. It was indeed. We fogged up the windows. They thought we were doing something different in like that Titanic. car. It was like Titanic. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I, I only ever fog up the windows podcasting. What are you talking about? I think I drew something lewd in the back window, but I can't remember. I hope so, and it'll probably come back later. And my children will ask me, "Dad, what's that?" And I'll have to say, "No, I know the movies you've been watching with your oldest lately." Uh, I well, I don't think he's going to have that many questions. Well, I got another one, you know, and it's smaller. He'll look. He's going to figure it out of it. He's in public school. He already knows. He probably does. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, that's one. I have the voices identify. Let's identify the rest, sir. Across the table, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and the psychotic drowns were the mystic swims. Man, you stole my line. You Yay. are dead to me. Okay, moving on. To my left, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon, and I like to call that the cherry on top. Excellent. My name is Dustin Sells, and I still like Mandy. Um, and that's all I've got, because Dalton took my line. I know. It's a great line. It is. It's very, very good. You could have gone with, uh, I ripped your favorite shirt. I, oh, you did rip my favorite shirt. I did. You did, I when know. I was helping you move. I remember. Which I'm doing again, apparently. Thank Much you. like Mandy, Dalton only takes. Yes, yes. That's yeah. That's Is it too late for me to go ahead and just make my line Nicolas Cage drinking an entire bottle of vodka <laughs> <laughs> while yelling? Just, just anger drinking. <laughs> it's awesome. All right, well, in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Honor cast, whatever. Uh -huh. Cased. You're going to give that another take? The Good Trash Honor cast, if you are tuning in for the very first time. Oh, um, no. So if you are doing this for the first time, you need to know what is about to happen. Uh, we are doing an analysis show, not a review show. And Mandy tw is a 2018 release, and that does mean we are going to get into spoiler territory, which might be an issue for some of our dear listeners. So, But this is what happens. We do a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema, which is of course spoiler free we do our thumbs up thumbs down reviews again spoiler free as possible and then we play a game which may or may not involve the mildest the gentlest of spoilers uh, of this film and other films in its orbit then we get down to business and that business is analysis and all spoiler bets are off you have been warned so without any further ado let's hear from the voice of the cinema mr arthur gordon himself let's hear that synopsis please 
The enchanted lives of a couple in a secluded forest are brutally shattered by a nightmarish hippie cult and their demon biker henchmen propelling a man into a spiraling, surreal rampage of vengeance. You know what I need, guys? What's that, Dustin? Demon biker henchmen. I think that's the sequel to Ghost Rider, isn't it? There are <laughs> multiple Ghost Rider parallels in this movie. <laughs> uh, and every time one happened, I was delighted beyond measure. Yeah, but he did drink a uh, pot of coffee out of the urn while it was brewing. No, but he did drink a big old mason jar of acid. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, he only like, put like a single... Like, I was talking tear- about the demon biker. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, he was doing it pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. God, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, there's um, um, drugs. Lots of drugs. Oh, so many. So if you're in recovery, dear listener... Um, <laughs> yeah, this might be a weird episode. Figurative. And literally, uh, trigger warning. Um, yeah, because yeah, there's a lot of that going on. So, well, let's go ahead and do this. Um, I'm going to go with our guest today. So, uh, first of all, let's hear a thumbs up, thumbs down review of the movie Manny. Do you like it? Tell me why or why not. Uh, I absolutely loved this movie. It was right in my wheelhouse. There is not a universe that exists where I was not going to just absolutely adore this. So, just the fact that it was, you know, so. I mean, it was art gore. That's it's it's Absolutely. like one of my favorite genres, so definitely you're, you're all in. So it hits all the ticks, all the boxes mm-hmm. there for Kirsten. What do you say, uh, Dalton? Uh, what do you say? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Review of Mandy. Uh, I'm the only one here today who had uh, the good fortune of seeing Mandy already, and uh, was so excited when Arthur decided this was going to be his uh, 2018 blind spot pick for this marathon because uh, I'd been wanting to see it again anyway, and uh, it happened to coincide with a, a weekend it was playing here in town. Uh, a weird release Mandy had. Deserved a bigger release than it got. Deserved a longer release than it got, but that's neither here nor there. This movie is cuckoo banana pants in all the right ways. I love it so much. Uh, the fact that it starts with a full-on hour uh, prologue that kind of just like sets the groundwork for what you're getting into, both aesthetically and tonally, uh, and laying emotional groundwork stakes, I think is really a strength of this film. I mean, we've talked a lot of revenge movies on this damn podcast. Because, uh, you know, those tend to fall in that, that wheelhouse of things we're talking about. But it's rare that a film that sits in that genre does the legwork of getting you where you need to be emotionally for the actual revenge itself to mean anything. Uh, and I think that is one of the strengths of Mandy. Uh, that, aside from, obviously, Panos Cosmatos. Cosmatos, yeah. There we go. Uh, th- this dude's direction is nuts. Uh, we talked, well, I wasn't on that episode, but uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow has been discussed on this podcast before, and we were all pretty big fans of that first feature from him. Uh, I can't remember. You guys both liked it quite a bit, right? Yes. That's what I thought. Um, I wasn't on the episode. I don't remember. It's been a long time. It's been several years now. Uh, just the visual stuff going on in this film is really great in terms of th- this trick he does. I guess they like shine lasers at the camera. LED lights. Yeah, to kind of give it a lot of that that double blur it's just visually inventive in a way that's super exciting uh look, we've been making movies for over 100 years at this point when you see something on film that you haven't quite seen before it's always really really exciting uh so the, the visual stuff alone would make it great but then it's got this fantastic score by johan johansson uh his his last before his death uh and what a banger to go out on honestly mm-hmm. what a, what a great body of work to leave behind overall but especially a great final piece of scoring for him to have written uh, it's just top to bottom. Uh, top to bottom. That's not a thing. Top to bottom. It's just doing everything it needs to do for it to work. Uh, there's so many moments where this film veers into alienating the audience and never crosses it, which is 
a difficult needle to thread, to say the least, especially when you've got a puppet vomiting macaroni. You've got a Nicolas Cage freakout that is probably one of the finest pieces of work he's ever done. To end acting. all freakouts, I'd Just, say. Yeah, it is the the ur Nick Cage freakout, and it is uh, moving in, in a really unexpected way. Uh, yeah, I, I love this movie, and that's even before the Chrome Battle Axe shows up. So, big fan over here. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, um, do you like Manny? Since you're the one that this is your blind spot. Are you glad you did this? I am. I'm very glad. I was highly anticipating this film, and it definitely checked all my boxes. I love Nick Cage. You've been on something of a Nick Cage I marathon spree. I've uh, been doing my homework on the Cage, uh, because I'm always curious to see which directors uh, will use him best. Nick Cage, good or bad? Are you ready to make an assessment? He's great. He's there the best. Go. Yeah. He, uh, he knows what he's about. I respect him. Um, he's a lot of fun. And th- this movie uh, delivers what it promises, which is just a... Uh, acid trip uh, revenge film with Nick Cage being the cagiest he's ever nicked. Now, dear listener, we've talked about this on air before, but we have often talked off air about a Rage in the Cage Nick Cast podcast because we love Nick Cage a lot. And uh, this movie is good fodder for that. We'll do it someday. It does a great thing of uh, that midnight movie aesthetic. It's got that surreal element to it, uh, but also bringing in uh, you know Nick Cage to to capitalize off of that kind of persona he's developed for himself. Um and I think it's a lot more embracing of its audience than something like Beyond the Black Rainbow or other films of this this uh, nature, uh, because you're f- always in the loop on what's going on with the plot. You know, it doesn't keep you at arm's length or anything like that. It really embraces uh, the viewer and just pulls you into this nightmare uh, really quickly and very very nicely. Uh, so it's it's definitely very effective, and I, I like it quite a bit. Awesome, awesome. Well, I also like this movie, and I, it was a blind spot for me as well. I had not caught, gotten the opportunity to take a look at it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I loved Beyond the Black Rainbow, and it's doing all those same things without being repetitive, which is a thing that you really have to worry about when a filmmaker is uh, so singular in their style and in their sort of approach to storytelling, where you've got all these whispered performances and uh, well-drawn characters, but without a whole lot of... Uh, data from which to do that drawing where it's sort of uh, elusive it, it or uh, rather it makes allusions uh, to those ideas and then you sort of fill in the blanks inside your own imaginary uh, that's really really hard to pull off and it's again easy to get um, uh, chintzy about it. it's easy to get just a sort of shorthand and just go out and, and find a sort of standard grammar even for that that is um, repetitive right and it becomes cliche very quickly uh, with an idiosyncratic director um, like uh, Cosmatos but he's he's doesn't he doesn't do that and it, and it's not just Nick Cage I mean Nick Cage is great but he has a real ability to find uh, other actors and actresses that um, sometimes they're known and they've done a lot of work and sometimes they're they're less recognizable but he's always able to sort of elicit from them these performances that are surprising. Um, there's a couple pl- places where Jeremiah Sands has some reactions to things that are going on that is just eerily strange. It could have been very, very standard, and he goes in a very, very weird sort of you know unique spot. Yeah, Linus Roach is real good in this yeah, movie. He, yeah, he kills it. And uh, you know, and the rest of them do. Brother Swan, um, oh, I forget the rest uh, of them. Andrea Riseborough as Mandy is... He's like a really haunting performance. Yeah, yeah, she's good. And again, we don't know what her story of past trauma is. We have really no inclination or no no real um, explanation of what it is, but we just know that it is. And somehow he's able to lift that little narrative nugget into enough 
which is pretty impressive, honestly. Uh, and then visually, of course, it is brilliant, the use of this sort of crazy light stuff, the way in which it, it very much feels like a fairy tale, and it also feels very, very, very contemporary at the same time. And uh, it is, yeah, it's awesome. Um, I had a blast watching it, and I'm very glad you picked it, Arthur. So there are our thoughts, uh, dear listener. They are um, not generally pro. They are highly pro uh, regarding this film. And did you expect any less? I mean, really, if you've been listening to the show at all, you knew this This was, is good trash. Th- yeah, this is where we live. So uh, anyhow, there you go. Um, but before we get any further, let's talk about how you can be part of this conversation with us uh, via those magical means we know as social media. Dalton, say the words. Uh, that's right. It's time for the part of the show where Arthur glares at me, and I use that as a barometer for how long I've been talking. It's social media corner. The part of the show where I remind you that uh, being on the internet's like soaking cigarettes for your soul. Stop doing it. Don't do it anymore. We're on Twitter at good underscore trash. You can go there to see what we are up to, uh, whether we're posting uh, fun things like David Ehrlich's uh, video countdown of the top 25 films of the year, uh, articles from people that we don't know, but we just like the writing, or uh, posting uh, new episodes of The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, or new episodes of this show. So that's at good underscore trash. You can have fun and play around with us over there. If you don't want to wade through that fucking cesspool of nightmares, you can also just send us an email. That's goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for that long-form feedback. Uh, also, it would be very helpful if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the show. You know that you've listened to a podcast before. You know what to do if you want to help us. Uh, last but almost certainly not least, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM to give us your hard-earned dollars. I realize we're not... We don't have ads on this show, so we can't offer ad-free episodes. I swear too much for us to bother to bleep it, so we can't offer you, like, uncensored episodes. We don't bother to cut, so we can't offer you an uncut episode. We're really slicing out a lot of potential revenue streams. What I'm saying is we're giving you the best possible product for free, so please give us some money. Just do it. Please. We want to cancel all of our streaming subscriptions and just have a business account for all of them. It would make the content so much good. Please do. Help. It, uh, it would make the content so much good. Yeah, please do help. Okay. <laughs> Finally, just go outside. Talk to people you like about movies. Tell them about this dumb show that you like and maybe uh, convince them to listen to it. That's it. That's, uh, that's a record. Right, I think I think it is. That's a short one. And I'm done. It, and yeah, well, and speaking of the spin, doing the in record. <laughs> oh, who can't talk good now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> speaking of doing this in record time, I think it's now time to play the game. And we're back, dear listener, with our game of Favorite Revenge in Cinema. That's right, Favorite Revenge Seekers in Cinema, brought to you by Mandy. Mandy. I don't know the words to the Barry Manilow song, so I can't do a reference here. Well, that was cute. You know what? <laughs> started strong and then fell and flopped right into that. Um, they can't all be winners. <laughs> all right, you well, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, pal. That's uh, all I'm saying. Moving on, um, mean joke insert here. Um, going to my left, Mr. Arthur Gordon, you're going to go first. What is your number what? first pick for favorite <laughs> revenge film? I'm just going down the list, and this roundtable nonsense. Oh, we're, we're just going to do them all. Okay, yeah. we'll do them all. Nail them. All right, my first one is Mr. Liam Neeson in general. Um, he yeah. made the last 20 years of his career off of this uh, persona of being a revenge seeker kind of kicked off with uh, Taken, and he's really finding his niche with this. Uh, he's kind of cornered the market on... Uh, grumpy old men killing people, uh, and I'm here for it almost every time. Uh, he's just a blast to watch, and uh, I'm very excited for that. He's kind of 
established himself as a kind of movie star in that classical style where I can say I'm going to watch a Neeson movie and people know what I'm talking about. He's going to be on some sort of automotive transportation and probably killing a bunch of people. Um, Trains, planes, and automobiles. He does them all. Oh, that's a remake I'd like to see with Liam Neeson. Oh, my God. But it's just him killing people on all forms of transportation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Liam Neeson is my first one. My second one is Jin from the titular film Revenge, uh, which came out a little earlier this year, and it is just a, a very, very good time. Uh, Jin is a uh, tough, bad A uh, who just gets crap done. Uh, she is resourceful and a survivalist. Uh, and it is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I uh, recommend checking it out. I believe it is a French uh, production yeah, or been, somewhere from Europe. You've been mentioning this uh, yeah. quite a bit uh, over the last few months. Uh, I dig it quite a bit. It does a lot to subvert uh, some expectations in the genre. Uh, and uh, the the cast is all just really good. And Jen uh, is a great character, I think. And uh, to, for her to be able to subvert a lot of those uh, kind of expectations of the victim uh, in this sort of a film and to kind of take back that power uh, is just really cool. Uh, and lastly, I'm going to say Joe. Uh, it's, I don't know what it is with uh, these short one-word names, uh, but Joe from You Were Never Really Here. Uh, mm. It is just a great character study of trauma and uh, how that affects the psyche, and Joaquin Phoenix does a great job of, of really fleshing that out as a character. He does a lot of uh, work just physically and with his face and just you can see the pain and you can see the tragedy on him and the way he carries that. And Lynn Ramsey just does a great job of exploring uh, the psyche of this character. And I think of this genre and, and playing with uh, again, expectations of, of what that really looks like. And so again, I, I think he's a great character. I think it's a great movie uh, to be checked out. Yeah. We are definitely uh, here at the uh, good trash genre cast officially pro thick Joaquin. Love him in that movie. Hmm. All Beefy Joaquin's good. Yeah, we're fans. We are all fans. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are your picks for favorite revenge seekers or just revenge films in cinema? Uh, we're going to start off with... Uh, I, I, look, I try to avoid bringing this movie up because it comes up a lot, but... Uh, Fight Club? No, it's... Ke fuck off. It's Keanu Reeves. It's <laughs> John Wick. Uh, we, of course it is. We were talking about this off-air. Uh, it was actually one of the very first uh, options that I thought of for, for this list, and... Yeah, look, they, they, he wanted out, and they killed his pup, man. He just, he wanted out, he wanted a good life, and uh, now he's got to shoot literally 100 people in the face. This movie is insane. We've talked a lot about the, the stunt work in the John Wick films on the show, so I won't belabor the point other than to say, I'm just so glad Keanu Reeves keeps getting work, even though he's 50 years old. I love it. Uh, he still looks 30, which is great. Uh, really supports all of our uh, vampire theories for Keanu. It, it's a wonderful series of films. If you're listening to the show and you haven't watched them, I don't understand how those Venn diagrams work out. Next up is Haley Steinfeld as Maddie Ross in the uh, True Grit remake. Good call. Nice call, yeah. Good call. She's so good in it. And uh, thank you uh, to the Coen Brothers casting director for finding Haley Steinfeld for that movie. And uh, we don't get a lot of child revenge seekers, uh, which makes her a fun pick. Uh, there's a handful, sure, but I mean, it's definitely usually middle-aged men not often is it uh teen girls and uh her interplay throughout that movie with jeff bridges is so good um it's wonderful and why would you bother watching the john wayne one when it exists i'm sorry the john wayne one is fine but the coen brothers is it's, it's there's a man wearing a bear in this movie 
watch Haley Steinfeld in True Grit. Last, uh, but certainly not least, is Macon Blair as Dwight Evans in Blue Ruin. Ah, oh, nice. Uh, just such a good damn revenge movie uh, that we haven't ever actually done on this show, but uh, talk about ad nauseum. Yeah, we definitely need to pull it up, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've done Green Room at this point. Maybe so. there's a Revenge Seekers marathon in our future. Look, we've got to f- cross them all off the list. It's a real Pokemon situation. We have to do. We are obligated to do every revenge movie because it is the most uh, good trash of all genres. Those are my revenge seekers, Dustin. Awesome, awesome. Um, well, Miss Kirsten Thurkelson, are you ready to uh, give us your selections? Uh, it's time to play the game. Let's do it. I got it. Um, all right. So uh, first off, I'm going to go with one of uh, one of the releases that I actually really loved this year um, from Widows. Veronica, Viola Davis's nice. character, yeah. uh, is really fantastic. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, Liam Neeson in that as well. Revenge is suck. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a very, very good movie. It surprised me a whole, whole lot. I was not prepared to like it as much as I did. I wasn't even going to go see it until word of mouth made its way to me, and I, I thought it was, you know, a delight, um, but, uh, and very well written. And Viola Davis is absolutely fantastic in it as well. In all things. Yeah, for sure. Um, next I'm going to go with, uh, and this is an all time favorite for me. Uh, I'm going to go with Zoe Lee and Abernathy from death proof. Uh, the girls who ultimately, uh, go after stuntman Mac, uh, and are his downfall. Spoiler alert for a 10, 10 year old movie. (laughs) Uh, excellent axe kick in that movie. Oh my God. It's so good. And it ends on, wait, What's an axe kick? That's just the, your leg straight up and down. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the... Thanks for disrupting that, the like, neighbors, Dalton. <laughs> Mild, mildly... Loved monster. <laughs> it's not 8 p.m. yet. They're fine. Mildly post-credits axe kick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, and then last, I'm going to go with uh, a kind of an unsung hero. Um, did anybody in this room see Prevenge? Prevenge. I've heard of Prevenge. I have not, I have not seen Prevenge. It's British. Yeah. It's, go on. I had the pleasure of going to a screening of it during Texas Frightmare Weekend, I think a couple years ago, uh, and I had no idea what I was getting into. I mean, it's obviously very campy, very over the top, super fun uh, if you want to see a nine months pregnant woman just <laughs> kicking ass and taking <laughs> names. That's all I think any of us have ever wanted. I think her. I think what it is, her husband dies in a climbing accident, and she thinks that her baby is telling her that she needs to get revenge on the people that are responsible for his death. She's got to get revenge on the mountain. Yeah, <laughs> I know that I'm responsible for all of my mother's mistakes. So yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Uh, yeah, but if you haven't had a chance to catch up with Prevenge, and I'm revenge. sure that probably not very. I mean, it's very. It's. I. I don't think I've heard very many people discuss that movie. It's, I've heard it's it come wild. up in a couple of places. I, I remember, obviously, it's hard to forget when you learn that there's a movie about a pregnant woman seeking revenge. Sure. I don't know that I knew that the she thought the baby was telling her to yes. do it. That's incredible. Uh-huh. That yep. really uh, takes it to a whole new new level for me. That's a, Yeah, that's that's awesome. It's a wild ride. Love Check it, it out. Love it. All right, Dustin, bring us on home. Who are and what are your, your revenge picks? I have many selections. Um, I'm going to first begin by literally jumping the shark and uh, talk about Bruce the Shark's revenge and Jaws for the revenge. <laughs> I, I, I'm a little serious because it is ridiculous as a movie. 
Okay. I, 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 this is the one with Michael Caine, right? Michael Caine, Mario yeah. Van Peebles, who is yeah. doing this insane Jamaican accent. It is all big fish down here, man. I mean, it is, it is awful, you know, what he does. And, uh, but it's so much stinking fun. And, uh, it ends, and I'll go ahead and give a spoiler at the end. Basically, the, Bruce the Shark is after the descendants of Roy Scheider's, uh, character, uh, Chief Brody. And so, uh, Mama Brody is down in the Bahamas and he is some sort of, uh, uh, aquatic biologist doing research on conch shells. And we, you know, which makes complete sense. And of course, you know, great white sharks don't stay in warm water, but it's after Michael and the family and, uh, ends with this great sort of bomb inside the body of the shark scene. It is screaming in like a pterodactyl. Uh, I, I don't know what a pterodactyl sounds like, but it is like Foley sound from a pterodactyl Are at you the kidding end. Me? It is awesome. And it ends up spearing itself on the prow of a boat. It is awesome. <laughs> the, Dustin, would you say that that is awesome? Yes. I can't. I'm I'm at a loss for words. It is it is so utterly. Give insane. me more movies where sharks have vocalizations, please. Yeah, because it, it does. It's it Godzilla screams. It is. I, I just I, it is bewildering what the happens. Meg doesn't scream. Does the Meg scream, Kirsten? You've seen the Meg. Does the Meg do a pterodactyl yell? I don't remember the Meg making any sounds. Missed opportunity at all, except for bone crunches. Missed. So, opportunity <laughs> so okay um, a, a more serious set um irreversible vincent cassell is uh seeking revenge for the murder rape uh well i guess just rape of monica bellucci uh told in reverse in uh, gaspar noe's great uh new french extremity film uh it's just a great example of that and sort of the weird consequences of uh so it begins with the br- it begins with the brutal you know murder of the people that he thinks are responsible and then it tells the whole story backwards and uh so it becomes oddly sad at, at the same time and so it's a very interesting sort of exploration of that idea of revenge in a similar way uh, that you see uh, Macon Blair do in Blue Ruin. And so I love that very, very much. Also, um, The Count of Monte Cristo um, is... Oldie but a goodie. Man, it is an oldie and and it's a great sort of way, again, just playing out his revenge of Edmund Dantes and all these people who have stolen so much from him and sort of getting, you know, again, beyond the grips of that uh, vengeful sort of stuff. But let's let's be real, guys. Uh, We like our revenge movies when it likes revenge. There's there's something really cathartic about that. And the, the revenge film I, or films is a pair of films I want to select last is uh, The Godfather's Part 1 and 2 where uh, Michael Corleone gets his revenge on everyone who has done dirty to him and his family and sort of cleans all the books and then Hyman Roth's long con game against Michael in The Godfather Part 2 where finally he reveals why he was betrayed because he killed Mo Green who was sort of this weird incidental character in the first movie and because you killed this guy that I loved way back when that's why I'm going to end you right Right now as best I can and I find that to be just really really fascinating it's very Games of Throny um, in the way it's sort of played out over a long period of time so those are my selections you guys are all making a weird face well, Giles is being cute I um, mean we're not looking at you man yeah. oh, I Giles is dog. about ten times cuter than you pops uh, the, correct we're I, all since podcasting is an auditory medium we're all just sitting <laughs> yes. here in a circle smiling at each other <laughs> while this dog like great <laughs> entirely right. invades my you, space what you come here for <laughs> listeners to tuning in to the good trash genre cast this week Giles gets into our laps <laughs> Oh, isn't that cute? And the rest of, you know, with the exception of everybody else here, I have a face for radio, but you guys are awesome. And, <laughs> Just gotta stop with the negativity, man, this. every week. But let's He's just move. so mean to himself. I don't. I, I can't. Yeah, everyone in this room is beautiful, but Giles is most beautiful. He is most beautiful for sure. All right, moving on. I think now it's time to get down to business.
That's right, dear listener. We are back, and it is business time, and uh, there's a whole lot of good stuff that we can talk about right now. And uh, I, I guess the first thing I want to talk about, um, and I, I, we, we talk about this, we've almost been talking about this weekly, but I think a, a particular issue in feminist criticism is an issue within this film that is worthy of discussion, and we have our own very frightful femme here with us, and so I do not want to miss this opportunity, and that is the concept of, and we've mentioned this before, the concept of refrigeration, where you take a female character and you murder her and put her in a refrigerator, and then she serves as motivation for another character throughout the rest of the film. Is I, I think we can nuance this a little bit with this particular um, instance of it, but is this a case of refrigeration? And if so, is it okay? If it's not, does it still? I mean, what, what's going on? I just want to sort of pose the question. Um, so jump in whenever you want. I'm so glad you brought this up because if you didn't, I was going to. Oh, excellent. Um, but uh, I, I had I had mixed feelings about that because in particular in this genre, I feel mm-hmm. like this is it's it's a huge thing that happens all the time. Um, However, I will say in this film's defense, you get to see from Mandy's perspective for a lot of it. Yes. But before like before the uh the the refrigeration occurs. Yeah, pre-cagening. It's Mandy's yeah, movie. Exactly. Um it's hard. It's it's hard because it is it's that old trope that's really kind of overdone, but I feel like this movie makes it not matter as much you know what i mean and and i mean there's a there's a there's a sort of a binary problem with the genre itself right so you either have i mean the binary problem being that it's either a dude or a lady right and it's a dude because his lady was hurt Mm -hmm. and that's why he does it or it's a lady because she was hurt herself and then it's exploitative in the front part where you see her get her you know whatever happened to her which is usually some sort of uh, version of rape um that goes on with that and so by by its very nature, these revenge films tend to do that. They can avoid them in a John Wick, right? When you use a dog, but again, slightly exploitative too. Um, I, I tend to agree that I, I feel like we 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 are in Mandy's movie for a long time, and that she is not simply just the sort of romantic interest of the character that we're really caring about. Because honestly, I feel like I know a lot more about her than I do about Kate. Mandy's not nobody. Yeah, we don't even get. Cage's character's name in the text of the film until we get to the credits and we learn it's Red. Right. I mean, yeah, it uh, is. He, he's called Red. No, uh, right. someone calls him Red at some point. Okay, I totally I, I, I think it. at the knock-knock joke, he, she calls him Red at some point, so okay. it's pretty early on. But even that, I mean, he's very minimally in the film until it becomes his movie in the in the back half. I mean, those that first hour is really... He's there we a couple of We spend the times. day with her. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it is her. We, we develop that character, and I think that's really where, you know, it, I don't know about, gets the trope right, but I think it does try to do something with that character as opposed to something where we watched a mute uh you know earlier this year and uh completely disregards any sort of character building for the you know the the female characters in that film on the one hand it can definitely come off as lazy because Mm -hmm. it's an easy easy motivation throw in there that like oh this guy's you know wife has been kidnapped or murdered or whatever but like in this particular case i feel like we spend enough time with her that it's less so you care about her and it doesn't take any joy in her death it actively doesn't it's the most unpleasant sequence in the film and i think the moment that immediately precipitates that is really what takes it home for me anyway there's this margaret atwood quote uh about uh the gist of which uh men are afraid women are going to laugh at them women are afraid that men are going to kill them Mm -hmm. and that is literally what plays out in the text of the film is uh jeremiah sands gets laughed at 
uh, by Mandy because she sees through his chicanery. That's maybe my favorite scene in the entire film, by the way. Oh, it's like, badass. There's so much good in that movie, but I, her just absolutely like crushing him, like laughing with all of the cruelty in anyone's heart. Mm-hmm. No and then shame. He murders her, uh, and yeah. it, and it, but again, it, it, it is playing into yes, the this trope that we have discussed at length on the show, as Dustin has said, but it, it threads that needle in in that it is drawing that parallel. It, it is saying. The, the worst that a man is typically afraid of a woman is that he's going to embarrass himself in front of her. Uh, and what and woman she, she hasn't... She scorns him and says, I don't give a fuck what you do, dude. You're a chump. What woman hasn't wanted to laugh in the face of a man saying something fucking ridiculous to her? While presenting himself in a bathrobe. Oh, my God. Ugh. An open bathrobe. With giant shoulder pads. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, it's yeah, very, very shogun-y, uh at that moment there. Uh, th- is it mitigated at all by uh, holding on to the sort of their meet-cute moment um, told in flashback at the very end of the film where Nick Cage is again in the number 44 favorite T-shirt? Um, does that, that – when I watched it, I, I remember thinking other movies would have showed us just that. Or just that with just a little bit of bookend on both sides of that meet-cute moment and then killed her. And by holding on to that moment, I mean, my explication of it is not the only possible one, of course, but does that in any way mitigate some of the refrigeration or is it even a play to it at all in your minds? I think that it sort of makes the point, and again, I, I could be wrong about this, but it, to me, it feels like we're bringing this back to the fact that he wasn't doing this because of her, he was doing this for her. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like now once that once he's like riding in the car and he turns and he sees her, it's like, this is complete. Like, I... I this felt like it was for her. It brings it home. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, the mitigation I think has already been done. I think, uh, Dustin, I think what it does is reminds the listener, not the listener, the viewer, uh, what the point of this all was. And as Kirsten so eloquently put, yeah, it wasn't about Mandy. It was for Mandy, which, you know, your mileage may vary. If that doesn't work for you, that's okay. But I, I think for the film itself, it, it uh, executes that really, really well. Excellent. Okay, well, here's my next sort of subject, and this is big. I don't really have a very laser-focused question, but there's a couple things swirling around and a couple things that we sort of mentioned off mic. Uh, The use of the intertitles themselves are gorgeous and amazing. The fact that the title card itself, Mandy, doesn't happen until an hour and five minutes in the movie is interesting. And so there's that sort of use of intertitle art alongside with those inter- interstitial bits of animation. So I want to talk about some of the, that, you know, sticking those other bits of narrative inside uh, the, the otherwise live action film. But also I want to talk about um, Cosmatos's inspiration for this and for Beyond the Black Rainbow. He talks about how when he was a kid, he loved horror movies, but was rarely ever allowed to watch any of them. And he'd go to the a video store and he'd look at these VHS covers, this great painted artwork, which again, the film imitates in many ways. Um, of of these movies, and then read these ridiculous synopses right on the back that don't really tell you much, and they and that you begin to fill in the blanks imaginarily. So I want to talk about just sort of the use of image to sort of draw out story, and there's a whole lot of stuff going on in there. Um, I will point out in terms of uh, you know album covers sort of do a similar kind of thing; they, they give an aesthetic and a vibe. Um, I, I was reading in the trivia, and I did recognize it as soon as I saw it. There's a great metal band called Celtic Frost. Um, which is a very, I mean, they're, they're a lot of fun, but the axe that he carries is like based off their logo, which is really kind of rad. I mean, there's no image more album already than that tiger uh, roaring in front of two moons. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. just, 
Yeah, the the the, Hell yeah. the aesthetic of this film is uh, 1983 album cover art uh, dipped in acid and thrown at your face at a very high velocity. I mean, that's what uh, Panos seems to be going for. And uh, there was another interesting anecdote from his childhood that I had heard. Dustin was uh, when he started really getting into film, even as a kid. Um, he would like watch them and think about his own films projected over top of them. And that's kind of where he got this inspiration for this kind of double image effect that he does throughout, not just in the the drug sequences that occur in the film, but kind of throughout has this kind of two visuals happening. And it's a, it's a hard, you could call it grain. Sure. But that's not even an accurate description of what the image is doing. It, It is a thing that has to be seen. Honestly, it's not really something we can describe. Uh, but yeah, there's a really interesting visual interplay going on there. And I think, I mean, beyond the black rainbow is obviously much more focused on visuals and less interested in narrative. Uh, not that this film is interested in its narrative that much, but it, it is obviously much more narratively driven. Correct. I agree with that. Rainbow. But I, I think, yeah, as far as imagery goes, Dustin, I think it is allowing this film to communicate as much as it can. Uh, through image and not dialogue. I think those title interstitials do a great job of setting up, this is what's happening right now, Uh, whether it's the Shadow Mountains, 1983 AD, which is just a a great title, and then the Children of the New Dawn, and finally, at the hour mark, as you mentioned, Mandy. Uh, For me, it says, we are now in the film Mandy proper at this point, and... Now, now we're going to get to the fun stuff. Like, see, I didn't read it that way at all. Yeah, what do, you, what do you think? I just, I just read it as those were the sort of, you know, st- divided into chapters. Yeah. But then, you know, I mean, okay, yeah, to an extent, yes. Whenever we hit the Mandy chapter, like, shit goes off the wall. Like, things are happening now. But that, I don't know. No, I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying because again, I think the first half of the film is what makes it so good. I just, I don't, I don't want to relegate the first half of the film to being homework, a yeah. prologue. For sure, yeah. that's totally fair. It's yeah. absolutely necessary reading. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. I agree with that. Yeah, it just there, there is a the ch- not only the choice to have that that title card in there, but the complete and utter badassery with which it is presented oh it looks like an obituary album cover it looks so awesome i love it it's fantastic yeah uh yeah the we haven't we've just kind of talked about the title cards uh what do we think about the the kind of the cartoons uh the the very heavy metal magazine inspired artwork we get throughout that second half i love them yeah i I think it's a kind of a great way to break up uh what's going on it's a nice visual flair and i always love it when films kind of do this think of how uh, which plays with some of those elements as mm-hmm. well, and, and I always appreciate that. And it, it's a nice, beautiful kind of juxtaposition to what he's doing. I think with the camera, and I, I, I like it. And I, I think the uh, the Mandy character herself, um, she actually becomes less and less decayed. You know, she opens up, you know, very zombie like and clearly dead. And then by the time he is um, getting more towards the end of his revenge narrative, um, she is uh, more beautifully rendered, more more herself, fully nude. Um, you know, again that sort of heavy metal exploitative side. But and he is like this sort of monster beast, and she's drawing this green stone from him, which I think is actually in one of the movies. Um, and uh, so, she, you know, that that sort of move there again is he's reconstructing his memory of her. He's moving further and further away from the moment, the event of the trauma. But he's also becoming a sleeping monster. 
right? Uh, at the same time, like there's something that's happening there, but there's also something that needs to be handled in terms of the revenge narrative itself. I'm, I would, I really need to go back into the movie and just like just watch those pieces back to back to back and uh, think more about it. Well, it's 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 interesting, Dustin, that you you bring that up, that idea that he's becoming something else because like the revenge does not become super effective until he breaks his damn brain, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, when he first tries to confront the bikers, it doesn't go very well. Uh, he thinks he kills one. Definitely doesn't, and then uh, wrecks his car on one of them uh, in their super biker durability, uh, and ends up captured. Uh, and, and it is not until uh, he uh, dips his finger into their jar of uh, devil's acid uh, and literally melts his face off, uh, which is such a man. The the imagery that gets flashed at the audience is that sudden violent hallucination (laughs) is so shocking it is insane but yeah i mean that is the moment Uh, obviously he has kind of turned the tables already and cleared this room of villainy but before that happens but that is the moment where nick cage has gone off the rails if you thought he had already gone insane uh no now it has happened but it it exists in the film to present this idea that red has have has had to become something that he either isn't or isn't anymore to get this done. He has had to forget this part of himself that makes him a, a nice person to, to do this thing. And, you know, we talk about this a lot in revenge movies, but it, this idea that it is an inherently corrupting act to, to mm. seek revenge, even if it is for a, a just cause. Yeah. Um, I am your God now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which is a crazy, I want to come back to that idea of uh, making that choice and mm-hmm. going to be, choosing to be the bad guy mm-hmm. uh, at the end. But I want to get to something else in between there. Um, I, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Manson. Let's talk about cults, baby. And cults. Let's yeah. Let's talk about you and me and all the bad things that we can yeah. do. Let's talk uh, about not, robes and swords and secret rituals. Yeah, basically just ways for guys to get laid is what cults are. But yes, that, that's all they exist for. But uh, so here is the thing that I think is interesting, uh, and I'm going to throw this out there just for the first time observation, then just let you guys go. So it opens up. The very first lines of dialogue in the movie are from Ronald Reagan. Over the radio. I thought about this too, yeah. And so he's talking about, you know, this sort of, you know, recovering of America and again, these sort of uh, standard conservative evangelical sort of Christian uh, political, you know, uh, just old whores, old saws that they 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 like to ring, and so it do, it opens up with that foolishness, and uh, then we have this sort of Manson thing that enters, and it's in the middle, you know, again, set it in 1983. This is in the height of the Satanic Panic, and. Um, and and so there, historically, there's something really, really interesting here. There's definitely this sort of wild conservative move that is very, very frightened and very, very sort of circle the wagons against a threat that doesn't exist. But at the same time, the film is also you know doing a gesture towards Manson, which is a murder cult that did happen. And so it, it, it's it's one of those weird things where you say this is a thing that didn't really they weren't these satanic torture cults they didn't exist. But there was this sort of thing that was going on, and then we're you know rolling it all up in this narrative that's sort of discussing all of that at the same time. I, I find it fascinating. I don't really have a thesis about it, but what do you guys think? Uh, I love the the choice there as that radio is coming on to just you know play set and setting where we are in this film. Red turns the radio off. Red has a distaste for this. He doesn't have any interest in listening to this uh, until it invades his life, and it's kind of drawing this through line from organized religion to cult activity uh look we could say a lot of things uh but i'm gonna say this uh christianity is if nothing else a really great handbook on how to start a cult 
you tell people that you are the only one with a direct connect to the divine, and if everyone will come hang out with you, they'll get all the secret wisdoms, baby. I mean, you have to like not read the Bible to do that, but yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, you have to ignore all of the uh, the footnotes and whatnot. But again, it is a pretty good handbook for uh, how to you know trick people into uh, listening to you and doing what you tell them to do. Yeah. Um, again, obviously missing the point. I'm not try- here trying to make people angry. I'm just saying that what Pano seems to be doing with this film, him and his, his screenwriters and all involved parties, seem to be drawing a through line in Mandy of the corruptibility of any uh, rigid enough belief system. If there is one human being at the head of something, uh, that person is going to be inherently fallible because, you know, a person. Uh, and there's a corruptibility involved when a person is involved with anything. Um, so it's an interesting through line for the film to draw, I think. Now, again... Uh, obviously, uh, Jeremiah Sands says all kinds of stuff that is, it's kind of hard to pin down what the mythology of this cult is. Yeah. Um, but because it, then you can prove it wrong. Well, yeah. Why would you make your cult easy to figure out? Yeah. Don't, then it's not a good cult. Yeah. Cause if you have footnotes, then they will do research because they're into a cult. That means they're, you don't, you don't get into a cult a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's a real on and off switch. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it, not a dimmer. There there are there is no nominal cult members. Just here for the robes. Yeah, you got to get in while it's fun and get out before it gets scary. <laughs> I was told there'd be Kool Aid. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this is a great time for us to plug a show we talk about on this podcast a lot. Uh, last podcast on the left is doing a great series about the order of the temp- shit uh, solar temple. Thank you. Uh, we've got a we've got a guest off mic this evening. The order of the solar temple. It is. A hoot. Nice. Uh, and has been really fun to listen to uh, within days of, of seeing Mandy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, cults all follow the same guidebook, man. It doesn't matter if it's Manson or if it's uh, a very litigious one that we are not going to mention on air. Yes. <laughs> they all follow the same handbook, dude. And it's all about getting a weird looking guy laid. It's true. I, uh, I'm going to throw Dustin out in the dark here a little bit for a second. Um, but you both saw Bad Times at the El Royale. Correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. So how do we feel the approach to cults and cult leaders there differs from what we've got going on here? I thought this was more successful, honestly. Yeah, no, I'm definitely inclined to agree with you on that, Chris. I, I think that I think that El Royale took a little bit of a shortcut on the relying on Charlie Manson to be like, here's Chris, which Chris is it? Oh, God. Hemsworth. Hemsworth, thank that, you. Well, nah. it's the second best one. Okay. Well, they're all just, yeah, Chris's. They sort of don't they, you don't Dustin <laughs> don't start. We know that Chris Pine is the best one. It's white beefcake. It's all just more white beefcake. Oh, Chris Pine is not a beefcake. He is a thinking man's hunk. <laughs> Fucking start shit with me. Blah blah. First time blah, blah. I ever saw Chris Pine in anything was smoking aces. Yeah, I know. That's, I just wanted to toss that out yeah, there. That's great. Uh huh. Yeah. He's a uh, he's one of the the Nazis. One of the huh. yeah rockabilly. T- I'd say skinhead, but he's got a mohawk yeah. <laughs> and no teeth, and it rules. And gets shot in the back by uh, what's his doodle? Yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm with Kirsta though. Yeah, I, I think you're right that just invoking the the image of Charles Manson uh, in El Royale is it's shorthand. I mean, it's effective. I but I liked Chris Hemsworth in that movie. I think, and I think he's a good actor. He's great. Yeah. However, I think that he's just sort of. And maybe this isn't a him thing. Maybe this is a director thing. Just sort of was like, here, we have a cult leader. This is why they're, you know, obeying his every word. And I think you're absolutely right. Without him actually sort of embodying the megalomania that a cult leader really needs to have. He seems like much like Dalton 
mentioned earlier, he is just uh, driven uh, as a character just to get laid. Uh, his pure sexual magnetism is what drives his cult rather than what we've got in Mandy, I think, which is a much more nuanced approach. Yeah, well, Chris that. Hemsworth is just sexy cult leader. The work is done. Yeah, yeah. He's he's too hot. Exactly. Uh, that's actually a very good point, Arthur. Yeah, by making he doesn't need so help handsome. getting laid. Yeah, yeah. But with Mandy, we we have to enter. There's not as many characters. Obviously, uh, Elroy Al spends a lot of time building up these uh, these side characters, which is the strength of that film. But here, in Mandy, we've got less characters, so we can spend more time on what is going on with this cult and what if not what their ideology is, at the very least, what their methodology is. I will also say that in El Royale, I immediately knew Chris Hemsworth was a cult leader, whereas in Mandy, he when you're first introduced to him, just like laying on the bed in that trailer with all of wearing so many rings, wearing more rings than you should never trust a man wearing that many rings. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead Alan and say Moore it. Moore sized uh, portion of rings. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Correct. And he could, like, he could be a rock star like you know what i mean like that he's got that sort of air about him of you know maybe he's a musician or maybe he likes people care about who this guy us. is but yeah well i think also Aha. i think also the movie is creating this sort of else world because you know manson happens 68 69 i mean done you know he's in jail and you know forever by 70 and ends the 60s. And here we are, flash forward, you know, 13 years later, 1983, but we're living in a moment where everyone's very, very terrified of it. And so it almost feels like the movie is constructing not so much, you know, this this is what could have been, you know, this is like a 19, 1983 set film where you would, you know, uh, a real possibility that you would run into the Manson cult because you wouldn't run into a cult like Manson because they're, they're gone, you know, at that point. But in 1983, everybody's terrified of the Manson cult and they're terrified of those kinds of cults. And so it's, it's almost recreating 83's paranoia in narrative form. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. We're, we're in uh, earth 73. Like there's so much by the end of this film to make it clear that reality has no meaning in the, the film Mandy, but even from the early scenes, we are in an else world. We are in this magical world that is the early 1980s and it exists outside of uh what actually did or did not occur in our timeline as we know it. I think you're right, Dustin. It does that really good job of setting that groundwork of when there's two moons and volcanoes later on. Mm -hmm. It's not important. Yeah, you're, you're on board. It doesn't matter. No, it's just a, a dope image to look at. All right. Okay, so I want to talk about that choosing to do the bad guy, the bad thing. So two things. Okay, initial sort of preamble observation. Cosmatos is the son of another Cosmatos who made an important western of the 1990s, Tombstone, and uh, which is, I think, his only film credit, his dad's only film credit. But I think I, that's right. I don't know that for sure. I didn't look it up. But it's, uh, it is definitely his most notable credit, so we can go with that. Um, and so the western is something that I was thinking about just kind of coming in, just knowing that he grew up, you know, around these people and around that set and was that one of his sort of formative experiences in life um, as a young man. And uh, when Nick Cage downs that bottle of vodka, there is a scene in Unforgiven. Uh, where Morgan Freeman yeah. has been murdered, and uh, you know uh, Clint Eastwood has uh, had a dark past and was a scary person. It seems that that is also the case for Red Nick Cage's character. That in his dark past he was a scary guy, um, but he's you know long moved past that. 
um, and has, has chosen to do a you know, live this really pretty good, normal life, you know, watching old trauma movies on the TV with his girlfriend, living this sort of reclusive life, supporting her in her art career, and, you know, working as a lumberjack. Um, Dude, nothing you're saying doesn't sound perfect to me. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's okay. all I've ever wanted. You know, and again, and, it, uh, you know, off the dope. So, I mean, everything seems to be a good thing. And then this crazy thing happens. And his first, you know, I mean, he goes to sleep, but as soon as he wakes up and realizes he's got to do something, he downs the whiskey, he bathes, he baptizes himself in the vodka, right? And goes crazy. So I want to talk about magic for a second. Um, uh, Please. Like, like a, Wait, the gathering or? No, the, like, the, the left hand, the right yeah, hand, yeah. and chaos okay, magic. Okay. Magic's with a K. Yeah, magic's with a K. Let's do it. So, uh, Tapnic, let's talk about if these, cage. are these bikers demons or are they not? Let's talk about well, it. Well, I, I think there is a weird sort of way in which you can look at the, sort of the metaphysic of the movie. Mm -hmm. As we've got our left hand path people, which are demon bikers, and we've got um, our cult, the Jeremiah Sand. They're all left handers. They're just, you know, they're doing their thing and they're definitely choosing to do bad stuff as for their own power or whatever. And then you've got Nick Cage and, uh, uh, oh, was the actress that plays Mandy's name? Bill Duke. Oh, sorry, actress. Uh, Andrea Riseborough. Andrew. I thought I was oh. ready for Carruthers. Sorry. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Bill Duke, when Mac from Predator shows up, it's uh, awesome. But yeah, Andrea Riseborough's Mandy. They're, they're, yeah, who's uh, they're, they're, uh, Mandy's smoking some fat rips before she uh, draws and paints, as we're shown. But, but that's still right-handed. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. It definitely fits in within the the, the, the genre or whatever. But yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. They Dude, are on this right-hand path. Right-hand creative expression. But he reaches this crazy moment where he's got to do something else, and he just said, you know what? That's not who I am right now, but it doesn't matter. I don't need to be that guy right now. The guy I need to be right now is... I need to be Clint Eastwood and unforgiven. I need to be the tiger in the cage, and I got to come out of that cage. Right, and 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 that's when he, I mean, finds the finds the vodka bottle, downs it as fast as he can. When he kills all the bikers, biggest snort of cocaine, <laughs> just off a shard of glass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shard of broken glass, snorting just a mountain of cocaine, and then, you know, the most insane acid trip, you know, LSD, you know, on steroids of all time. Um, and and, and the, then that confrontation with Sands where he's like, no, you know, the, the mystic swims were the psychotic drowns, and you're drowning, man, and I'm your god now. That, that entire moment is this sort of the metaphysic of, of what's needful. And what's needful for the situation. And so it's a very sort of utilitarian sort of ethic, you know, within sort of, again, this sort of magic with a K metaphysics. So that's my observation. What do you guys think? I don't know. Well, no, it's great because Kirsten and I were actually texting about this. And this is something I thought about the first time I saw this movie. Uh, but the, the bikers, are they? Are they supernatural? Are they supernatural? The answer is Yes. But is it literal or is it figurative? The answer is also yes. Yeah, PCP plus magic. Yeah. They are literally uh, supernatural because they believe themselves to be supernatural. Does he literally have a knife or a penis? Maybe. Does it matter? No, not at all. Because this is what is it is what it is on screen, uh, and it does not matter if it is literally or figuratively magic. It is magic within the text of the film Mandy, regardless of how it exists. It does exist. And uh, I, I think the introduction of the bikers with the fucking the horn of Abraxas, yes, freaking ocarina of of darkness, <laughs> so good. But as soon as that happens, Mandy announces, "Like, did you think this was going to be a weird movie? Because it's a really weird movie." It turns out, uh, and yeah, it, it announces the existence of magic within this world. Like, you've you've already been introduced to the cult. You have not been made ready for just how culty they are. Uh, because they have a, a legion of demon bikers at their disposal. I think that's the conclusion that I came to as well, which yeah. is that, is it 
is it this sort of like uh, un unholy liquid or is it just really strong acid like are they demons or are they men and the answer is uh yes and they're yeah they're so they're so ungodly they're so inhuman that it it no longer matters if they they're they're so far removed from humanity that it doesn't matter if they're tripping super hard or if they literally have supernatural powers yeah exactly and that is what uh, red has to tap into is uh, as kind of drawing a line to what we were just talking about fight fire with fire exactly he has to you know become the monster mm -hmm. so he can go to the monster's place right yeah 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 send a monster to kill a monster i mean you know uh, yeah. send a maniac to catch a maniac and yeah. we go back to demolition man from a couple weeks ago but uh, and it, it works so well because of that uh as arthur said the ragiest of cages the the, the cagest nick that has ever caged uh, it's a performance that is going to elicit laughter from some, but legitimately put a lump in my throat. I think it's one of the saddest things I've seen all year. Uh, it, and it's, as I think we've all kind of hit on tonight, it's Panos knowing what to do with that Nick Cage performance. And it's it's Cage having a director that knows how to use him. And Cage finally having somebody that's going to take what he's capable of and use it correctly. And uh, kind of head the audience off at the pass with what they expect from a Nick Cage performance and say, we know you saw the freak out coming, but I bet you didn't think it was going to look like this. And it, man, it works. And I think I want to make one further sort of observation just to see how strongly the Jeremiah Sands group is tied to, again, a left-handed path kind of thing in contrast to a right-handed, which is sort of like good magic versus bad magic, which is reductive, but we're going to go with it for right now. Um, it w is that moment when he, when he walks into that church chapel thing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the most awesome church ever. I so desperately want a pulpit that is fashioned from the trunk of a tree still in the earth with a building built around it. That is amazing, right? I, I just, I find that really awesome. It's very good. Anyway, um, but there clearly, um, it's it's an actual chapel. It's sort of an existent building that's already been there for some time that these uh, these hippies, this cult, have have appropriated. Yeah, it looks like they're building it. That's what I took. I mean, there's a bunch of lumber lying around. Uh, there's chainsaws. Uh, there's a scene where Red is overlooking There it. are chainsaws. Oh, there are chainsaws. I, I just thought it was a clear cut that he just happened to throw as he was going through. The whole area was being clear cut. I'm going to say it could go either way. But okay. Even if it was already there uh, or they built it, they're using existing imagery in either case. But I was thinking that when he goes into it as an existent chapel, there is an old bible that's on there and he sort of looks at it and he goes you know he sets it aside and then he goes where the guy is because mm -hmm. that that stuff's for up here but he's got to bring you know and his, his sort of version of chaos right now is not useful but he's got to go down to the down below gotcha. into this sort of again uh full of the uh uh, dry ice, you know, smoke and and fire uh, that's down below in the, the red light. He's got to go into the hell house. The church keeps in the basement, right? And that's the <laughs> and that's the left hand and uh, hell house is left handed path stuff too. I'd say, uh, mm, yeah, you're I'm, gonna get yourself into trouble, buddy. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hell, you guys die in a fire. It's terrible. Anyway, um, but he goes down there, and that's where this guy's living. He's using maybe some of the same kind of language, and again, there's a lot of overlap between left and right-handed path, but this chaos magician doesn't care and comes down, and that's when, you know, he puts his axe through the guy, and which is really, really awesome. But, anyway. I, I'd like to give this also a, just a reading from the perspective. We don't have to do it right now. I, I just want to, I'd like to review this movie uh, through the through the lens of uh, Hero's Journey. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's... Because he goes, he, goes uh, he goes to the trailer to talk to the guy who gives him oh, the... Dude. 
the chemist yeah. is the wise master. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's definitely a lot. And of course, the line, you know, the one, the 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 psychotic where the psychotic drowns is where the mystic yeah, swims. Is um, Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Mm. So I mean, it's got a lot of that going with it. So yeah, I like that. I didn't know that it was Joseph Campbell until today, but I felt very smart just now when you brought it up. Justin. Thank you for that. <laughs> Do what I can. Um, well, there you go, um, dear listener. Um, I think that kind of wraps up, unless there's anything just burning on our minds to discuss. No, we'll be here for another three hours if we keep going. I just want to note that George Cosmatos also directed the masterpieces Cobra and Rambo First Blood Part 2. Oh, he did, he wow. did First Blood Part 2? Yeah. Okay, I take it back. I and don't he know. He did if... 10 features total. Okay. Well, so, good for George. Yeah, good for him. Did I... one called Leviathan? Which Leviathan? There's so many called Leviathan. 89. 89 Leviathan. Uh, American Deep Sea Mining Colony, yada, 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 Soviet vessel. No, I don't know. Horrific I secret. I think I've seen part of that movie, actually. There, there's a great avant-garde film. Um, about, yeah, from like two years yeah. ago. Yeah, two yeah. Three. Uh, well, there's a Russian Leviathan that's sort of like this cold um, Nordic kind of uh, detective story. I'm talking about the fishing boat one. The fishing boat one is awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, let's go ahead and render a verdict with this film. Let's go shelf or trash. Else or instead, Arthur Picker of the film, this is your blind spot. So is it were you so blind that you really didn't even see the open place in your shelf for this one? And if so, what else? If not, what instead? What? Uh shelf. Yeah. I'm not gonna not garble that nonsense. Um <laughs> he, uh yeah, I I and I think this is one of those fun movies. I I, I wasn't able to to attend this local screening here uh at our new uh little art house theater. Um but uh, there was a late showing, a 10 o'clock showing of this at the local rodeo cinema. Uh, and I think this is a film that really is going to earn those th- sort of midnight screenings and kind of really hit that cult status, I think. Um, and so I, I think it's a shelfable film. I, I think it's a great entry into uh, Cage's film canon. And, and so I, I appreciate that about it. I say else, uh, that kind of dream aesthetic that he opens with reminded me a lot of Peter Ware's work, especially Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yes. And that kind of hazy... Uh, film over the over the uh camera i i put put that up there um speaking of charles manson uh a little uh family joint called manson family vacation i would uh throw up there as well manson family <laughs> okay i said i'm gonna let you just wrestle with that okay one for a minute. I, I, had, I, exp- I went ahead and explained jaws for the revenge you've got to explain a little bit of this to me well a uh it's a uh i'm trying to remember the a prodigal son returns home and he's kind of always been an outcast. Um, I believe he's a half brother or full brother of Jay Duplass's character. Uh, and come to find out, he is related to Charles Manson. I believe. Whoa, that's and incredible. Charles Manson might be his dad. I can't remember the full conceit. I'm, of I'm that only story. vaguely aware of this. It's movie. been a few years. There's probably sixty or seventy people who Charles Manson might be their dad. <laughs> oh no, sired. Um, I would also uh, just from more Nick Cage, another film from this year, Mom and Dad. Uh, you got to watch Mom and Dad. I liked that yeah, it's, way more than I was prepared to. Yeah, it is full on 2018 year of the cage. Yeah, and Selma Blair, she does great. Uh, glad to see her do that. I love that. her. Uh, and finally, 8mm, uh, Joel Schumacher's uh, Nick Cage, first Nick Cage film, uh, is a lot of fun. It's got a lot of that fun meta stuff that we appreciate here. Uh, and uh, a really fun turn from Joaquin Phoenix is kind of this uh, punk, pansexual type character Ooh. it's very fascinating yeah. uh yeah I, I liked it a lot so those would be my else's excellent excellent well dalton what do you say shelf or trash else or instead yeah it's going on the shelf this movie's fantastic it's probably going to crack the top 10 uh when we do that later on this year uh well early next year is when we'll get to that probably yeah it's it's an all-timer it's one of the most fantastic things that we've ever had the pleasure of watching for this this 
podcast. I love it. Uh, what should you watch with it? Uh, it's already come up once tonight, but the other 2018 revenge movie that's not really a revenge movie, you were never really here. Um, if you have not caught up with Lynn Ramsey's film from this year, it's fucking fantastic. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is great in everything, but he's really at the top of his game in this film, and it's just one of the saddest things I've ever seen, but is also really engrossing and, and really engaging and never in a way that feels too... I mean, it's not exactly an easy watch, but it doesn't ever feel more punishing than it needs to be. Um, I think Arthur uh, earlier touched on like thematically what makes it work really well, but uh, I think visually, the way it communicates trauma, it does so in a way that keeps it from being too unpleasant to, to behold. Uh, so definitely check that film out. Um, for more... Uh, beautiful colorful otherworldly action films i'm gonna say tarsum's the fall which we uh i haven't brought up in a while as a movie i really like uh, it's got lee pace in it that's uh, from 2005 i think a uh, really great film and uh, i was just i sat for a while and tried to think of action movies that are as aesthetically pleasing and otherworldly as mandy and the fall was the the best uh pairing i could come up with in that regard uh, and finally, this one's going to surprise Arthur because he thought we were talking about it next week, but he roasted me about it so much. We're doing something else. It's uh, The Endless, uh, which is a really great film that was going to be one of my uh, blind spots uh, for 2018. Uh, and I watched it to get ahead of the curve. And Arthur said, doesn't count as a blind spot. You've already watched it. Yep, can't do it now. I did my homework too far ahead of time. So I am going to say, check out The Endless. It also dabbles in cults. It also dabbles in the unknowability of reality. Um, very good movie. You guys should still watch it, even though we're not doing it for the show. But uh, that's going to be my other else. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dolenstrup. Miss Kirsten Thurgelson, what do you say? Show for trash, elsewhere instead for Mandy. I'm going to go ahead and give this movie uh, two improbably long chainsaws out of two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as for as for shelf for trash, my my Blu-ray copy arrived hours ago nice. before <laughs> before I arrived here to record this podcast. Um, so definitely shelf. Uh, as a, as far as else, um, I went ahead and went with sort of things that were in the same spiritual vein. So um, I'm going to go with Argento Suspiria. Yeah. Uh, very pretty, very gory. Um, absolutely love that film. Does a lot of does a lot of uh, the work with color that I think that this film does really, really well mm -hmm. with lighting as well. Much more so than the remake. I agree. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll, I'm also going to go with uh, Drive mm -hmm. um, for being, you know, nice. both beautiful and violent uh, and also a really slow burn at the beginning uh, that just kind of goes off the rails nearing the end. Um, and then... Uh, Raimi's Evil Dead, the first one, mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think is also, if you liked, if you liked this movie, check out, check out Raimi's first Evil Dead for sure. Awesome. You're going to like that as well. Very good. Very good. I like this movie a lot. So yeah, obviously it goes on my shelf as well. Um, I think you should definitely check out his earlier work. We've already covered on the podcast. Beyond the Black Rainbow is excellent. And uh, definitely these two are uh, a spiritual pair um, that is definitely worth your time. Um, I was thinking about that opening dream sequence uh, where Mandy is walking through the forest and she finds the dead fawn. Um, there, and it's very evocative and reminds me quite a lot of Lars von Trier's Antichrist. Chaos Reigns. And Chaos Reigns, yeah, that moment. And so, and it, which is probably what got me thinking about this sort of chaos magic metaphysic of the movie, too. Um, and so I think that is an interesting. Um, pair with this although a lot it's less fun than mandy it is definitely not fun it's a movie that hates you 
actively. Uh, so, you know, be aware, be forewarned. Panos Cosmatos loves you and wants you to have a great time. Lars mm-hmm. Von Trier's hates everybody, including himself. And so, yeah, very, very sad. Uh, another pair, I thought, and especially in terms of performance and sort of the weirdness and just trying to figure out what's going on and the way, again, it's very elliptical in his narrative, it reminds me a lot of David Lynch's Lost Highway, um, which I hadn't seen in quite a while. Is um, Patricia Arquette and um, uh, Bill Pullman are uh, the main stars in that film, and uh, Balthasar Getty uh, is also the same person as bill pullman sort of um and again it's it's a nutso kind of crazy movie um but it does have some some narrative overplay with it but the way the performances are put together is in a very very similar vein and the whole thing is sort of lynchy in the way that these characters do um their their delivery of their lines anyway um but i think lost highway of the oeuvre from the lynch uh, might be the best pair um, that I know of. So that's my recommend there. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts about uh, a great little movie. And uh, so we're continuing with our 2018 blind spots for our December marathon. And Dalton gets the opportunity to make the pick. And it's not going to be the endless. No, Arthur shaped me too hard. Uh, so now we're going with what was almost my first pick anyway. We're going with the fight movie. We're watching A Prayer Before Dawn, starring Joe Cole. We watched him do jujitsu back in Green Room a few weeks back. Now we're going to watch him go to Thailand and l- try to learn how to box and get beat up a whole lot in prison. So, yeah, I, I miss this one in theaters. Uh, it, it's a prison movie about Muay Thai, starring Joe Cole. I'm in. It's right up my alley. I should have seen it in theaters, so we're doing this next week. Uh, you guys should still watch The Endless. It was really good. I liked it a lot, but uh, Arthur is very, very good at making me feel bad. He is indeed at making us all feel bad. And though he does that, he also makes us feel very good when we have a conversation about the movies, which is what this podcast is all about. Um, these movies are so much better than just 90 minutes and that bucket of popcorn. And so uh, you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for tuning into the Good Trash Genre Cast. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a product of Good Trash Media. For more info on everything Good Trash, head on over to goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music, as always, is an original composition by friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers. And our outro music this week is Mandy by Barry Manuel. I remember all my life Raining down as cold as ice Shadows of a man A face through a window Crying in the night The night goes into morning Just another day Happy people pass my way Looking in their eyes I see